Our next speaker for the afternoon and our last speaker before we have a, um, an afternoon tea break, Nathan Baird from Methodry. Please join me in welcoming Nathan to the stage. Thank you very much. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, great to be here. It's always good to talk at a design conference because you can wear a T-shirt and be the best, best person in the room. <laughs> I joke, you look great. Um, also great to see all the colour here. Normally, you know, a few years ago, you go to a design conference and everyone was wearing a black T-shirt. No offence, Steve. It's still cool, though. Okay, um, well, yeah, really excited to be talking to you today about establishing a kick-ass design-led innovation practice. I'm going to talk about design and innovation practices um, as one because over the last few years you would have seen they're really converging. You know, what's innovation, what's design? And it's um, sort of becoming one word. So what we're going to cover off is a, a quick um, entree into the age of the design practice. And then I guess the main course is the four steps or elements to building a kick-ass design or innovation practice. Bit of a discussion if we have time, although um, Maybe a bit like Zoe, I've packed a lot in here. And then I guess the dessert is afternoon tea. So I know where I stand at the moment. So I just want to talk briefly about the innovation challenge that we have. And that's, you know, we all know how important innovation is. But it's also bloody hard. And no matter who you talk to or what your experiences are, the success rates are really low. You know, the failure rates are really high. So. We're all trying to build these innovative cultures to help counter that and improve our innovation success rates. And one of our key initiatives for building more innovative cultures is the internal design or innovation practice. Now, an internal innovation practice isn't anything new. Um, and actually, maybe after Zoe's talk, it's even older than I thought. <laughs> but what's new since design thinking, human-centered design has become quite mainstream um, the last decade or so in Sydney, are the, is the number of internal design and innovation practices. Now, be that, you know, you might be in an internal design practice um, and you've got an external customer. You might be sitting in a product team, or you might not. Or you might be an des internal design practice where your customer's internally. Or you might be an internal design practice where you're building capability. Does anyone relate to any of those? Three of you, great, I'm in the right room. <laughs> The rest of you, Excel trainings down the hallway. <laughs> so what type of internal design practices? Let's see if we can catch a few more of you. So look, we can come up with at least four by comparing the level of funding with a level of mandate. Um, so down the bottom here with level of funding, we've got low to high, and then organisational-wide you know, mandate or buy-in as well, low to high. So if we quick kick off down the bottom, you've got the guerrilla or underground design practice. Does that feel like anyone in the room? That's the hardest one, yeah? I was fortunate enough to get a role in that position in that bottom left-hand box. Um, I was working for Claire, um, a global brand consultancy, global boutique consultancy. They're in London, Amsterdam, Hong Kong, Singapore and Sydney. And they're a brand consultancy and I got offered a role, a global role to set up their training capability development program, you know, for clients. Um, key, to being, key to success was engaging all the consultants and getting them to sell and deliver that capability and training. There lay the problem. They joined Clear 
which sounds great with a Kiwi accent, um, they joined Claire to be consultants. They didn't want to be trainers. So even though we had some buy-in from each of the global or country MDs, essentially it failed. Slightly better than that position is um, bootstrapping. So you've got low funding, but you do have permission to innovate. And um, when I started my career, I won't tell you when it was, um, but a few years ago, as a, as a brand manager or product manager with Unilever, I was given a role looking after walls, which is streets here in Australia, and Viennetta. Yeah, that's how old I am. Viennetta was actually um, a bit of a cash cow even by the time I got to look after it. I heard it's making a bit of a comeback. But anyway, I was a marketer without a marketing budget. Isn't that hilarious? I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's almost embarrassing. Um, and what I realised, what I need to do is uncover some ideas for new products. Because if I could come up with a great idea with, my, with the team for product innovation, then we could get funding. So that's how I sort of fought my way out of that box, was let's come up with some great innovations, and then we'll get some funding, and then we can launch them. Bottom right. Um, this is a little bit of an odd one. I don't, I don't think it's seen that much. Um, maybe in big corporates. So you've got high funding, low mandate. You're probably a little bit isolated. Maybe you're a silo. Maybe you're a fiefdom. Maybe you're a bit of a rogue. Maybe it's a bit of smoke and mirrors. Um, but they do exist. I haven't actually had the fortune to work in that role. But there's still time. And then the last one. I guess this is the sweet spot. So high funding, high mandate, you know, you're empowered to get on with it. But even in that box, it's still not easy, and I'm going to touch on that later. So I was lucky, um, and my kids find this hilarious, that you know, they, they think, oh, this is awesome, Dad used to work for an ice cream company. In a few years, they're going to be going, oh, that's awesome, Dad worked for a brewery. <laughs> How lucky was he? Um, but I worked for Heineken sub subsidiary DB Breweries and set up their innovation team, but you know, had fantastic funding, fantastic mandate, and we, we did some great things, and it's probably one of the best roles I've had. If I did get the opportunity again to go and set up a design or innovation practice you know, internally with an organisation, these would be the five things I'd, I'd look for now at age 48 after having all those experiences. I'd want it to be mandated from the CEO down, you know, properly mandated. They're supporting it, they're role modelling it, they're giving you permission. Good funding or generous funding, you know, the right amount of money to innovate. Product ownership or a customer be that internal customer or an external customer, you want to have that. Integrated and aligned within the rest of the organisation. And a top five priority and on the upwards trajectory. Yeah? The one other thing I guess I'd be wary of is um, if you are joining an organisation that has other design and innovation teams. Because um, I think like what we were here before, you know, that can result in competition rather than collaboration. So I'd be wary of that one too. Okay, so that's the entree. We're going to get into the mains. So four steps to build a kick-ass design-led innovation practice. Am I overselling that a bit too much? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I want to talk to you about four experiences that I've had over my career. I've touched on some of them, and I'll tap into a few others. Working for a brewery, a nation, a bank, and a big four firm. Couldn't quite give New Zealand a B letter to start it off with. Um, Aotearoa is close in the alphabet, but it's not quite there. So Heineken we touched on. Um, so a few years back, establishing their product innovation team within the marketing or 
product marketing team. Um, work with Better by Design over a number of years, some of you may know of them. Um, set up within New Zealand Trade and Enterprise to really help drive economic growth. Um, working with Combank for a couple of years to develop and scale their design thinking experimentation program. And then um, just a few years back, although it seems like only the other day because we had that three year gap between with, with COVID, but asked to come in as a partner and set up KPMG's design thinking um, practice or human centered design practice. And if you want to know more about that, I'm happy to tell you that over a beer. So um, pretty much all those organisations, all those journeys went through these four key stages. And yes, there are more. Um, setting up a skeleton team, setting the strategy, selling. I'm going to talk to you a lot about that today. And resourcing to scale up. I'm just going to duck over there and get a water, OK? So skeleton team. As design leaders, you need to think, sell, and deliver. And it's probably not in that order. Um, you need to sell first, and then you can do some thinking before you then deliver. So what's the minimum amount of thinking, selling, and delivering you need to do to get off the ground? Yeah, and what's the minimum team you need for that? A group that um, Mags and I have been part with part of um, in terms of developing your thought leadership, talk about being thought leaders and you need to think, sell and deliver. But I think the same applies to us as, as design leaders. So if I look at that role at um, DB Breweries, so obviously they had all the business as usual units and the existing marketing team. And then what we added to that was a head of customer insight, a head of innovation, which was myself, and then because I'm, you know, I'm no good at project management, um, someone who could do the project management delivery and, and who loved that. And that was enough for us to get started and get going. Um, all the cliches, you know, runs on the board, uh, low hanging fruit, quick wins, get some of those. So here you go. And then at KPMG, obviously I had the firm. Um, I think there's been a movie about this. And then the customer practice, which was probably the smallest of the big four consultancies, a really tiny customer practice. There was one partner and a team of 12 to 15 when I joined back in 2017. But that was enough um, for us to get going and to set the strategy. So kick-ass design and innovation practices, they really know what they're doing, they know what their level of ambition is, and they've got some areas to focus on. Oops. So you want to be setting you know, the goals and timelines. You want to take a portfolio mindset. So think about some short-term as well as some, some long-term projects that you can work on. You know, some core and some breakthrough projects. You, know, you don't want to just be doing one or the other. You want to have a really good mix. Give focus through identifying some opportunity areas that you're going to target. And then outline your plans for developing those opportunity areas. So there's a great model here, and um, you can read more about it. I'm also a bit of a reader of the HBR. So, you know, is your design practice responsible for innovating around the core or around evolutionary or revolutionary model uh, um, space? I think this model actually talks about adjacency and breakthrough, but I like this language more. You know, where, where are you focused? What's your level of innovation ambition? Or are you doing all three? 
A model I, I love to use, and, and um, perhaps Zoe can do some research on this, I believe it comes from journalists um, in terms of writing an article as the five Ws, but it works really well for strategy. You know, what new existing or lapsed customers or users are we going to be targeting? Um, why? What are their needs that we're going to go after? What are the unmet, untapped needs that we can go for? And then when and where, what are the occasions that we want to play in? And you'll find this works as much when you're designing internally as well as externally. So when I was back at DB Breweries, um, we wanted to set the strategy, so we had that, that skeleton team up and running. We need to involve as many people as possible because we obviously want a diversity of thought, but we're going to need their help later on so to execute you know, on the strategy, so we needed to get their buy-in as well. Um, we pretty much took a design thinking approach to our strategy. We got a whole lot of people together for a two-day retreat. We had a series of um, inspiration talks, so like around the five Ws, global food and um, beverage trends. And we would you know, have a talk, we'd bank out opportunities, and then rinse and repeat, a bit like Netflix. Um, and from that, we'd bank out lots and lots of opportunities, and then we'd harvest them, and then we would um, craft them down into, you know, we called them blueprints at the time. Now it'd be a canvas. Everything's a canvas now. Um, so we'd wrap it out into a strategy canvas. And then we would stress test that, yeah? We'd look at, is it on purpose? Is it on strategy? Um, is it a big, a, big, um, a big prize, a big opportunity? And then that would feed into our agile process. Just joking, it's linear. <laughs> I've got a coffee sign up above my espresso machine at home, and it says, um, drink coffee, do stupid things faster. Every day I look at it and go, that sounds just like agile. <laughs> anyway, don't get me back for the agile conference there. Um, I did a little bit of work with the ATO design branch, one of the oldest, um, biggest design branches in Australia, at least within government. What I love what they've done here is they match up how they're going to deploy with their strategy. So if they're working with the rest of the organisation, if you look down the bottom on high priorities or revolutionary innovation, then they're going to partner with you and they're going to work alongside you. So I'm just going to get Whereas if it's a medium to evolutionary type, priority or innovation, then they're going to guide you, they're going to facilitate. If it's lower core, they're going to advise and coach. It's like, here's the tools, get on with it. Yeah? So I love how they've matched those two together. So um, this is where you all want to run away, because I'm going to talk about selling. Like, we're designers, we don't need to sell. Yeah? Does anyone agree with that? Does anyone feel a little bit awkward then when I say selling? Yeah? Does anyone love selling? couple of you? Cool. So um, no matter the practice that you sit in, and whether it's one of those four or a different one, you need to sell as a designer or as an innovator. Yeah. As designers, we're often having to lead through influencing, persuading, convincing. You know, we work across the organisation. We're having to enlist the help of so many people, and often without line authority. Yeah. I might be white, I might be middle-aged, um, and whatever else they're saying going, but I still don't believe you should influence with, our, with line authority anyway. But, um, you know, we've got to convince them, don't we, to get them on board. So back to KPMG, it probably wasn't low-low, um, but it definitely wasn't high-funding, high-wide mandate, organisation-wide mandate, but I was, it was getting towards the edge of that box, yeah? What the gig was, come in, Establish and scale the human-centred design practice. Um, mention the existing practice. 
but there were also 600 other partners and there was a team of about 10,000 people across Australia. When you join KPMG um, as a partner and as also as a director, um, you've got targets. You eat what you kill. I don't know if you know that saying, um, but basically, you know, your targets, you, like I had to bring in four to six million per annum, and that was based on what I brought in. There was some collaboration around that, but that was, you know, eating what you kill. I wasn't going to make it on my little black book alone. I was going to have to tap into the black book of all the other partners and directors. The barrier was, a lot of them are already comfortable. They're doing well. They didn't need this new design thinking thing. You know, I could sell a, a, a you know a tech project for to government for millions. You know, I don't need to to you know take the trouble of doing design thinking. So I had to find the collaborators, um, and I adopted a bit of a push and a pull strategy. Um, on the right, we've got the marketing cone or funnel. Pretty much took that approach. I haven't got the four Ps today, but never mind. Um, the push strategy was about meeting as many people as I could. If there was an opportunity to meet with a team, meet with a geography, um, meet with a, a specific market industry, then I did that. Lots of coffees and all that sort of thing. From kissing all those frogs, you know, you realise which were the design heathens, um, and we didn't want to convert them, but we wanted to identify the collaborators. The pool strategy was, as we started to have some successes, you know, advertising it internally, but also externally. Um, a friendly partner told me early on, you know, if you promote and advertise externally, people internally will listen to it more. And it's, it's so true, um, you know, hearing about your successes outside. And then what I didn't, I couldn't do with um, that role with Clem and Sisachi was setting up design thinking leads. So, you know, placing, not moles, but, you know, people in key geographies, key teams and that to, to help you grow and, and, and succeed. So um, there's no big four partners here today, is there? They're not going to like this one. <laughs> so there's, um, who, who likes the Venn diagrams? Well, I seem to be two by two. Um, so from, you know, kissing all those frogs, um, I was able to map the partners. And you've got mindset versus ambition. So down the bottom, you know, a fixed or, um, well, yeah, fixed mindset, open or growth mindset. And then on the left, their ambition. So they're quite comfortable or they, they hungry, got some drive. So let's start in the, um, the bottom left, and hopefully I don't stumble on my words here, but the fat cats. So, you know, they're pretty fixed, traditional thinkers. Um, they're comfortable, they're doing well. You know, they're not interested in design thinking. There's a saying that fat cats can't hunt. Um, and that sort of applies. Next up the top, fixed mindset, but hungry, still driving to do more. But they're quite tunnel vision, you know, they're doing really well. Not to pick on tech people, but you know, they're probably the tech partners, they're the big projects, especially these days. Then over the bottom right, you could do work with them. They had an open mindset, they're comfortable, but you had to do all the work. It's like, Nathan, you do this for me. Happy to introduce you to the client, then it's over to you and your team. And then top right, obviously, collaborators, that's the ones we wanted to go for. They're the ones we kept doing repeat business with. Um, yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit about Better by Design in New Zealand, another great opportunity. So I worked with them over a number of years, both when I was in Auckland and, and since I've been in Sydney. So they're, they're, New Zealand did a big um, design study and what they identified was to create economic transformation, if they embedded design into small to medium enterprises, they could get that economic growth. In New Zealand there's, there's Fonterra and then there's, there's daylight, like literally. 
Um, I think Fonterra is bigger than tourism in New Zealand. So they're like one and two, something like that. So, I mean, this is fantastic. This is a government, this was a country, um, obviously a small country that was getting on board with design and could see the benefits of it. By embedding design into these small to medium enterprises, we could help them win on the world stage. That's their, um, pretty much their process, you know, their selling, their delivery, their thinking. It often started actually, and what I don't have on here is a CEO summit, so a lot like today, where there's, you know, lots of um, presenters from around the world, from New Zealand, so local case studies and exemplars too. And that was sort of, um, you know, showing you what was possible, the art of the possible, giving people inspiration that would, you know, attract them in. Then there was an enrolment process with the CEO of the SMEs. Then there was a boot camp, which was like a try before you buy. If you got through all those stages, then you're into the program. And whilst no one really truly graduates, you know, you then become alumni. This version of their program, because they ran for a number of years, was more of a coaching model. Um, before that was more of a consulting type model. But there were some great learnings. So as I said, the CEO summit was, you know, this aspirational draw card, the art of the possible. possible. And then the CEO enrolment, it was almost like a shoulder tapping, you know, Better by Design would identify who do they think's got potential, you know, the Mac Packs, the Icebreakers, the Fisher and Pikels, but you know, a lot of smaller companies too. Um, and check interest, check commitment, check potential, check capability. Were they willing to dedicate a full-time person as a design catalyst within their organisation? So it's very much a two-way street. Um, and then the boot camp. So that was like, try before you buy, it was generosity, um, I believe it was free, but once again we were assessing the client at the same time, seeing if they were right for the program. After going through those steps, both the client and Better by Design would make a decision on whether they progressed, and then they would go through the program. Once you're in the program, you get to go on study tours, so I went on one study tour up to Silicon Valley, um, and they've run those every year. And then you become alumni, and you get the opportunity to give back as well. So resourcing to scale up. So um, you've got your skeleton team, you've set your strategy, um, and now you need to, to resource to scale up because you've hopefully been successful in your selling. So one of the things to look at is we talked before about you know, your level of innovation ambition. So you want to match your resources to your level of innovation ambition, yeah? Um, and actually on that, what we find works really well is um, having centralised teams and funding models for that more, you know, breakthrough innovation or revolutionary innovation. And then innovating within the business as usual units for your core innovation. You know, that's something they can get on with. And design structures that accelerate the different types of innovation that you're after. So breakthrough innovation requires executive support. You know, you try doing it without. Um, and you're banging your head against the wall. And it often requires different, sometimes separate, um, resources from running the core. But you want to be careful with that separate. We all know of quite a few labs that have been separate from the rest of the business. And talking to you know, some of the people in the business, oh, nothing ever comes out of there. So you want to make sure it is still integrated, even if it is separate. Um, there's, a, there's a talent war going on at the moment. We've heard about that. Um, Look at how you can hire people, but also acquire, network, partner to get the people you need as well. 
Um, so I just want to quickly talk about ComBank. I'm going to have to watch what I say now, aren't I, Tara? So um, a few years ago, 2013-14, um, through UTS, we were asked to come in and design a design thinking and experimentation program for um, Enterprise Services, which is their technology group. So thinking by the current, or the CEO at the time, was if we're going to stay as the leader in the financial services space, we need to develop some innovation capability within our tech team. So the model that um, ComBank use is expert, advanced, sound, and aware. So expert, we trained up a roughly 150 people, advanced 250, probably a little bit more, sound 1,000, and aware 3,600. So about 5,000 people overall. So we kicked off with the expert, and there was a reason for that. They had 11 days of training. Um, might still be suffering from that. Working on real company projects, there were also study visits, and we also took them through an intensive three-day train-the-trainer program. And come back to those two points. The advanced cohorts, four days of training on real company projects, sound, two days of real-world projects, and aware, half day of um, real-world projects. Now, the experts got to train, co-train sound with us, and then the experts trained sound on their own. So great program and some lessons learned. What, what, what would we do differently next time? So the challenge for some of them was, you know, no innovation background. So you're going from, you know, zero to hero as an expert. And as a result, there was a little bit of, you know, imposter syndrome that we all have. You know, how do I build my DT reputation? I can go out to the rest of the bank saying I'm a D DT expert, design thinking expert, but how do I build that reputation? Now, luckily, opportunities came from projects. Um, partway through this program, they set up, the, you know, the innovation lab. A lot of them end up being coaches in there. So those opportunities did come up. Silo mentality. So look, you've got to take the opportunity you get. And we got given the opportunity, um, and the technology group got the given the opportunity to upskill and design thinking. So you wouldn't say no. But you know, design thinking and innovation is a team sport, isn't it? Um, so really, we should have been training people in cross-functional teams across the organisation. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a, a barrier we could remove at the time. Um, sheep dipping everybody, appreciate there's not that many Kiwis in the room, but maybe there's a few Aussie farmers who know what I mean. But you know, when you're trying to train everybody, when you do that, there's going to be some, some hostages um, and some holiday makers in the room. Yeah? So you've got to realise you're not going to convert them all. And then you've always got to have a leadership involved, their buy and their presence throughout the journey. Um, and there's always improvement, I think, on most programs for that. But like I said, it was the vanguard for um, success on many things including you know, the innovation lab that been now run by, well at the time been run by people who have been trained up at the expert level. So one last example. Um, so back to KPMG again. Like I said, we, we um, were sitting in that customer practice as a small team, hired a few people um, within the HCD team. Just after I joined, they acquired a, a, a research agency, so with great qual and quant expertise, which was fantastic for design thinking. Um, I guess the elephant in the room was, you know, all these management consultants who had great management consultancy tra uh, training and skills. If we could tap into that, you know, give them some design thinking. I know management consultants don't have any empathy, but um, <laughs> we, we got there in the end. And so this is the program we took them through. And um, the first step I, I stole from IAG, 
Um, when we did some training with IAG and with IDO, um, they led that. We made people apply like IAG did. You had to apply for the program. We, we, we had limited spaces. We made it scarce. So people wanted to get on the program. And obviously we made sure we had geographical spread um, and organisational spread. Then we ran them through a three-day intensive program. We ran one in Sydney and one in Melbourne, and you know other people flew into those. All SWAS assessing people for their potential. Then in Do One, so C One, Do One, Teach One, if you know that model, Do One, we start bringing them in on projects so they could get some you know first-hand experience working on design thinking, human-centered design projects. Once again, we were we were assessing them. Then from those 48 people, we identified a shortlist who we thought not only would be good champions, but could help roll the training out. I wasn't going to be um, hitting my four to six million if I was just training people internally all the time. So we took a select group of 12 to 18 and took them through a very similar trainer-trainer program that we did with Combank. So coming out of that, we had a strong cohort who could then you know, start to lead projects, but also lead that training across the organisation. And um, we partnered up with our people and culture team. And it wasn't just management consulting. So KPMG's, you know, management consulting, tax, audit. So we also trained in tax and audit. So if your tax return's a bit off this year, that might be why they're doing too much design thinking. <laughs> um, just quickly, a few lessons learnt from that. So I'm, I'm sort of focusing on all the constructive lessons. Um, but there was a missed opportunity. I missed an opportunity to build a stronger community of practice with regular catch-ups. Seems like a no-brainer, um, but that would have been awesome to do. Handing over responsibility to scaling the training to people who have been through Train the Trainer meant some of the messages and the skills and tools got diluted, um, you know, naturally. But also, after that first cohort, you know, we didn't handpick the second cohort of Train the Trainers. Um, and if we'd done that, we would have helped I guess keep the um, credibility and impact up there. So um, the other four critical steps, I'd say two, three and four are, are steps that you never stop doing, you know, you keep iterating on. But thank you very much, um, as, a, as a way of saying thank you for coming along today and listening to my lovely Kiwi accent, even though I've been here for 12 years. Um, I've got a free copy of my book for you. I need to stack them up outside. I'll be just outside on the right. You'll find it an easy read. There's no accent. <laughs> so that's the best joke I've got. Um, for those of you online, grab a free copy. There's a link there. Um, and all you've got to pay is postage. And um, has everyone got that? Because then also, um, there's one for you and there's one for you. No. <laughs> Open it. There's also a copy of our um, design thinking method cards, which just send me an email and I'll email a copy out to you. Obviously there's no postage with that one. Um, and they're great for when you're innovating, you know, on the bus, out in rural and remote Victoria, on the train, at home, wherever. Thank you. <laughs>